Good morning, everyone. A couple of things uh, before the message today. Uh, I, I also want to add to what Karen was just saying. I want to thank everybody in our youth ministry for last Sunday's youth service, uh, those who participated, those who were behind the scenes, those who show up every Wednesday night expecting God to show up. I just want to stop and say thank you. Thank you all for that. Uh, it was just an amazing worship service last week, wasn't it? It's really one of my favorite Sundays of the whole year. My heart was so full. You know, it gave us a window into what God is doing, how God is at work in the lives of the young men and the young women who are rising up into leadership, membership, service in our church, their church. So I just want to say to all of you in the youth group, thank you. You inspire us uh, all. You encourage us about the future. And you remind us that the future is now. So keep on growing in grace and in knowing Jesus. Keep pressing on, following hard after him. Okay? And then on another note, I realize stepping into the pulpit today that this begins my last year uh, serving as your senior pastor uh, as the Lord wills. So, <laughs> thank you, Luke. I know. Yeah, I feel that way too sometimes. <laughs> I just wanted to say, I'm not sure really what to expect, especially at the level of my emotions uh, as this year is going by. But I do believe that God has great things in store for us in the year ahead and on into future years and future generations for Really, this church is his. It's not ours, it's his. And he has promised, he said so clearly to his followers, I will build my church. We, just, we have to take our stand right there. I will build my church, he said. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So, let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you will build your church that has always been true. And it's true today. And it's true in any future days you give to us. So build your church. You are the rock. You're the only one upon which we can build. Holy Spirit, come. As you have been with us, stay. Please stay with us. And show us Jesus. Show us Jesus crucified for sinners and raised to give us life. We need you. So come, show us Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen. We get to experience a lot of joy and a lot of hope in our church. But we always need to remember that every week can be a hard week for somebody in our church family. Somebody receives bad news from a doctor. Somebody hears deeply hurtful words from a friend or from a person who had vowed to be faithful and loving. Somebody's child goes astray, or gets arrested, or gets sick, or is injured in an accident. And maybe somebody sitting near you in worship today. It was just a few short weeks ago that we were saying, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. <laughs> everything is new. Everything is different. Everything has changed. So how do these things sit side by side. You know, how does the resurrection change all the things we have witnessed and experienced 
in our lives since Easter Sunday? Well, the good news is the scripture just loves to answer that question. And the story of what happened on the road to Emmaus is among the most exciting responses to that. Immediately after describing the empty tomb and Jesus' resurrection from the dead, the gospel writer Luke shifts his scene to a road that leads away from Jerusalem to a city called Emmaus. And we're going to spend the next few weeks on that road uh, as we finish up, yes, by God's grace, as we finish up the Gospel of Luke. So let's read our text for today. It's in Luke 24, beginning in verse 13. This is the word of God. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. That might be my favorite verse. What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Cleopas and another of Jesus' followers are on the road to Emmaus. Now, we don't know much about Emmaus. We don't even know exactly where it was nor do we know why these two were going there. Maybe they were going home after watching their Lord die in Jerusalem. Maybe they were frightened now to be in Jerusalem, and they just wanted to get out of town. We don't really know, but the text does tell us exactly how far Emmaus was from Jerusalem. Seven miles. Seven miles. So apparently, uh, the point of of Emmaus is just that it's a place that's far enough away to go to get away from your disappointment. And that's why I've titled today's message, The Stranger on the Road of Disappointment. The Stranger on the Road of Disappointment. Emmaus is where you go when you have to get away. Because the person or the thing you were counting on has let you down, has disappointed you. Maybe the road to Emmaus is the road back home or the road to work or to a new job or to the church. It 
It doesn't need to be far, only about seven miles away from your last disappointment. I say that because I think we all spend a lot of time on that road. Cleopas and his friend have become lost in their grief as they walk along. I want you to notice that his friend, the second person, what's the name of that person? That person is not given a name in our text. Do you know what that means? It means that he or she could be anybody. Any one of us. It could be you. It could be me. We are there. A third man comes up and begins to walk with the two of them. We are told in the text that this is Jesus. But the two disciples cannot recognize him. God keeps them at this point from recognizing the risen Christ. The most striking thing about the appearances of our risen Lord is that he is so hard to recognize. People aren't expecting to see him, and they, so they don't. It's got to be someone else. Mary thought he was just a cemetery gardener. Peter thought he was just a man on the shore asking about fish. Cleopas thought he was just a stranger on the road making idle conversation to pass the time. To this day, the hope of the risen Christ still shows up as a stranger at first. Usually the stranger is unwelcome at first. His name may be failure. Maybe the stranger is a disease or grief over a loved one who died or a child who has strayed. At times you think you're going to be okay because you've made some distance from that grief, but then it strangely, suddenly reappears out of the blue. And you think your heart is just going to break in two. Such a strange thing, this grief of loss and disappointment. I I don't know how the stranger may first appear, but if it is the risen Christ, One thing I can say is he will probably not appear the way you expect him or when you expect him. As they walked along together, Jesus asked them, what are you discussing with each other? Like he didn't know. The text says they they stopped, dead in their tracks. They just stood still, looking sad, their faces downcast. And what we're seeing here is spiritual depression when Jesus is gone. Spiritual depression when Jesus is gone. What does that look like? Well, here's what it looks like in our text today. It looks, first of all, like a loss of joy. When Jesus says, what are you talking about? What's up, guys? Their first sign of spiritual depression surfaces because verse 17 says, they stood still, their faces downcast. Their dejection could not be hidden. It was just visible on their faces. They had lost their joy. And you know something? Negative thinking can lead a person down into depression. There's such a thing as a downward spiral where negative thoughts lead to depression, and depression in turn leads to more negative thoughts, and so on. It just gets darker and darker. It's kind of a vicious cycle in the dark in a downward direction. What else does spiritual depression look like? It looks like loss of hope. 
these guys have lost all hope. Look at verse 21. We had hoped. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Did you notice the past tense? We had hoped. In other words, we used to hope. We once had hope. Not anymore. We've lost our hope. It's gone. It seems to me that the cross had not destroyed the love that these two disciples had for Jesus, but it had certainly shattered their hope. What else does spiritual depression look like? Well, it looks like unbelief. The third and maybe greatest indicator of the spiritual depression of these two disciples is their unbelief. Jesus says to them in verse 25, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Slow to believe all. In other words, they had seen, read, heard, believed only some, only some of the messianic prophecies. The ones which spoke of the Messiah's victorious kingdom. He's going to come, he's going to be a king, he's going to reign, we're into it. We got that part. But when that kingdom failed to come as they had expected, or in the time frame they had expected, they became victims of their own unbelief. The scriptures all along had taught that the Messiah would suffer before he reigned, but they just didn't see it. Frankly, I see a lot of unbelief in the church of our day, or what might better be called selective belief. For example, there's a tendency to believe in the goodness and the love of God, but not in his wrath, not in his judgment on sin. Many believe in a kind of prosperity gospel, but not in the promises about suffering and persecution for those who follow this king. Many believe in the gifts of the Spirit, but not in the fruit of the Spirit. Many believe in the call of discipleship, but not the cost of discipleship. We desperately need to teach and believe the whole counsel of God. So, in summary, these two Emmaus disciples have lost their joy, they've lost their hope, and they are victims of their own unbelief. Then, Cleopas asks, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's going on? Jesus of Nazareth is dead. Now, Jerusalem was a big city, and the chances are good that there were folks who had missed the death of Jesus completely. But most hadn't, and grief works like that. When you have lost something or someone you cherish, it can be absolutely infuriating that life can go on as normal for other people. You're in such pain. Don't you know what has happened? Jesus is dead. He was mighty in word and deed. We had hoped he was the one to redeem, to restore Israel. We had hoped. There's that past tense again. We had hoped. Yes, we all have our hopes about what Jesus is supposed to do. Can, can we talk? we be honest about this? We all have our hopes about what Jesus is supposed to do. We had hoped that if we brought our child to church, she would grow up to be okay. 
We had hoped that if we prayed for our marriage, all would be well. We had hoped that if we finished college, we would find a good job. We had hoped that if we sent all those soldiers over there, they would clean up the mess and come back okay. We had hoped that Jesus would help us the way we wanted him to. We had hoped. We had hoped. The strangest thing of all about the risen Savior is that he will not save the day in the nick of time as we had hoped. No, Easter proclaims a different kind of hope. And and that's where we get very confused. Easter proclaims a hope that appears after the nick of time. (laughs) The nick of time has come and gone, and it's too late. You see, our hopes about what Jesus is supposed to do have to die first before we can have real hope in Jesus himself. That's what it is. Do we have hope in Jesus himself or in what we think he's supposed to do? If our hope rests in certain scenarios happening or particular circumstances falling into place, those hopes cannot survive the beating that life will give to them. We need hope in a Savior who cannot be beaten. Amen? We need hope in that kind of a Savior. He cannot be beaten. Not even death can beat him. But who will also not prop up our hope that is placed in the wrong people, places, situations, or things. Only Jesus can be our source of secure hope. And he is about to reinsert himself back into the center of the lives of these disciples with the broken hope and dream. Cleopas and his friend, they went on to tell Jesus that they had heard some unbelievable but confusing stories from some of the women about an empty tomb. These women had seen angels telling them Jesus is alive. But then, looking straight at Jesus, you have to visualize this. They're looking right at Jesus, but they're being kept from recognizing him. They're looking right at Jesus. He's still a stranger to them on this road. And they said, None of us has seen him. (laughs) I think God must have loved this part of things, you know? None of us has seen him. I'm sure Jesus had to control himself from just breaking out in laughter at that point. (laughs) In response, the stranger said to the two men, How foolish you are. Oh, how foolish you are. Which means Jesus did not take the same counseling course as I did. We were taught to be more empathetic than that. To be good, reflective listeners. So what I hear you saying is... (laughs) But when you need a new vision of hope, it is really quite foolish not to see it when it's standing right in front of you. Since that hope had been written out in the scriptures way ahead of time. So Jesus then reminded these two disciples that even their own prophets never promised that the Messiah would restore their dreams. What the prophets promised was that the Messiah would suffer and die first. And then, after our dreams for what he would do for us, should do for us, was supposed to do for us, when those have also died, 
Well, then we would be able to see him for who he is, risen from the dead, offering strange new dreams and hopes that come only from heaven and not from us. First death, then life. The early church had a few legends um, that they would tell. They knew it, it wasn't biblical truth, but they had a few legends that helped them to illustrate biblical doctrine. And according to one of these legends, the devil himself once tried to get into heaven by pretending to be Christ. He took a company of demons with him. They were dressed up like angels, and together they went up to the gates of heaven. And the devil, who knows scripture, shouted, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. At first, you know, the guards at the gates, they were thrilled, thinking that their king had returned to heaven from the dead. With joy, they shouted back their refrain from the psalm, Who is this king of glory? And the devil, he flung wide his arms and he said, I am! And that's where he made his fatal mistake. Because in that act of arrogance, they had seen his open palm. And there were no scars from the nails on his palms. So they knew this was not the king of glory. He had to suffer and die first and then rise from the dead. So the only one who can open the gates of heaven still bears the wounds of his passion for us. And on this side of Good Friday and Easter, we ought to know that our hope is not to avoid loss or grief or pain or even death. Our hope rises from the dead. That's the kind of hope we have. Our hope rises from the dead. Just as Easter comes after Good Friday, so does our hope appear after we lose all hope. You see the irony of that. Our hope appears after we've lost all hope. That's the way the great biblical story goes. Was it not necessary? Jesus says to Cleopas and to us that the Messiah should suffer all these things and then enter into his glory. Then beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was written in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now we start to see the beginning of something new. And what is that? It's the spiritual dawn when Jesus is back. It's amazing to watch Jesus operate as he does here. He begins slowly but surely to turn their spiritual depression into a spiritual dawn, putting himself back in the picture, back at the center. He's back. He's talking to them. They just don't know it yet, but they will. Imagine the smile that must have crossed his face when they asked Jesus, are you the only one visiting in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened? (laughs) No, he's certainly more than a visitor. He certainly knows what happened. He was there. So at first, he just listens to them. But then notice what he begins to do. He corrects them. He doesn't leave them in their darkness and their depression and their unbelief. He corrects them. How foolish you are and how slow to believe all. He corrects them. Then he instructs them. He begins to teach them, explaining what all the scriptures truly had to say about him, about the Messiah who would come. Now, 
I have to tell you, I wish I had heard the conversation between the two disciples before Jesus joined them on the road. I would have liked to have heard that. But how much more I wish I could have heard that sermon, that, that little sermon by Jesus himself. I want to know where's the recording of that, because I want to hear it. That must have been amazing. Can you imagine the joy, the dawning joy and hope of hearing the Messiah himself preach his way through the Messianic texts in the Old Testament? We don't know what Jesus said, but here's a sampler of what he might have said, what they might have heard from Jesus about himself that day on the road of disappointment. So here we go. Just strap in and stay with me on this. Genesis, where he is the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent. Exodus, the true Passover lamb. Leviticus, the atoning sacrifice. Numbers, the manna from heaven. Deuteronomy, the prophet like Moses. Ruth, the kinsman redeemer. Psalms, the good shepherd, the rock. Isaiah, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. The lamb led to the slaughter, the offering made for the guilt of us all, the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Jeremiah, the branch of righteousness, Ezekiel, the true vine, the true shepherd, the new temple, the living water from the altar, Daniel, the one like a son of God in the fiery furnace, the stone cut without hands, the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Are you with me? You still with me? Are you seeing Jesus? Hosea, the lion of the house of Judah, the true husband of an unfaithful wife. Joel, the refuge and stronghold of his people. Amos, the roaring lion. Obadiah, the deliverer on Mount Zion. Jonah, the prophet delivered alive from the dead after three days and three nights in the heart of the sea. Micah, the ruler from eternity to be born in Bethlehem. Nahum, the one standing on the mountain announcing peace. Habakkuk, the rock of salvation. Zephaniah, the victorious warrior who sings a love song over his people. Haggai, the signet ring chosen of God. Zechariah, the rider on the red horse, the branch, the king riding on a donkey, the cornerstone. Malachi, the son of righteousness who rises with healing in his wings, the refiner who purifies from all unrighteousness. This is our Savior. This is our King. Man, oh man, what a sermon that must have been. Don't you wish you could have heard it? Jesus pointing out the truth about himself everywhere in the pages of the Old Testament. Don't you wish? Well, you can't. You can. You can. We need to read our Bibles with our spiritual eyes wide open to all it says about Jesus. He's there. Because this is not just a history book. It's not just great literature. It's the biography of Jesus. The role of Scripture is to draw us into the hopeful drama of Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners and the Lord of all. This is why we come to church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday to worship. This is why we teach the Bible to our children 
and our youth and continue to study it as adults. Because as the word of God is taught, understood, and believed, the little stories of our lives are woven into the big story of God's salvation, God's redemption in Jesus Christ. It's a story that began before you and will live on after you. It's God's great story of salvation, and he's woven your life into it. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. In the words of St. Augustine, nothing worth doing can be accomplished in one lifetime. Just let that humble you when you get feeling like you're pretty important. You might be irreplaceable. (laughs) Nothing worth doing can be accomplished in one lifetime. That gives me great comfort as I begin this final year of ministry as your senior pastor. You know, our meaning in life, our purpose in life, is not, it's found not in what we do or how much we do or how well we do it, but rather in our participation by faith in the eternal work that Jesus Christ is doing. I think the great tragedy of so many lives today is that they are being lived without a great narrative. Many have yielded to the temptation to define their lives by their own experiences, their own small stories and tiny narratives. But that inevitably means that their lives are defined by their disappointments. For this is a disappointing world. Everything is marred and stained and broken by sin. Christian author and speaker Marva Dawn has made the insightful claim that we live in a society whose very economy is dependent on our being disappointed in what we have and always wanting more. You can't be satisfied because then you're not going to be a good consumer. Consumption is built on the assumption that you are always going to be a disappointed person, which is why we keep consuming, just a little more or a little different or a little better, and that that will finally do it, and I'll be content and satisfied. No. So disappointment is what defines a consumer and what defines our lives. But what if your life were defined instead by the God who said, let there be life and so much more? What if you took your place with Moses and the Hebrews, whose disappointment at staring at the Red Sea was shattered by the parting of those waters? What if, like Cleopas, you took seriously the stranger who has joined you on the road of life, and especially when you find yourself on the road of disappointment? What if you learned to join the Apostle Paul in saying that you have died with Christ in order to live with Christ? In other words, what if your life were shaped by the biblical drama instead of your own drama, right? This is what we do. Our lives, we define our lives by our own drama. (laughs) A lot of drama going on. What if our lives were defined by the biblical drama instead? Then you'd no longer swing back and forth between disappointment and consumption, living a small life that ends in a small death. Instead, you would become caught up in a death-defying hope. And then you would be a person whose life is caught up in Christ's gospel mission in this world. 
But you have to know the Scriptures and what they tell you about Jesus Christ. With so many hard days ahead of us in life, in a broken world, it's foolish for you not to know where to find your hope. Your hope is a person, not a set of circumstances. Your hope is a person, and his name is Jesus, the risen Christ. May he not be a stranger to you. Amen? Today we celebrate the Lord's Supper, and this is a meal of communion for us with the risen Christ. And what I want to do today, just for another couple of minutes, is just to jump ahead to the part to part of our text for next week. 